Welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief Podcast. And it is a special edition of the uh, podcast today because Helen Amas, our commissioning editor, has put together a humongous special edition of the magazine that sort of commemorates, analyzes, reflects upon, and also looks onwards around a year of teaching during the pandemic. And we've got tons of features in this issue uh, with teachers from all walks of life, all phases, all sectors, all talking about the last year, what it felt like, what it was what it was like being in a school during a pandemic, what it was like teaching remotely. And we've got some, also some academic research around how teachers um, fared during the past 12 months. So that's going to be the single topic of discussion today with Gronya Hallahan. Hi, Gronya. Hello. And Dan Worth, as usual. Hello. Um, so let's get started. Okay, for the first sort of section of the podcast, we're not going to look at any specific feature, but we, we're going to sort of reflect on the on the last 12 months of, of education uh, during the pandemic, reporting on that, which has been absolutely mental, not as mental as actually working in a school. We, we, are, we are definitely not at that level, but it has been a bit crazy. Um, Gonya, do you want to start and sort of talk about what what your sort of not highlights or lowlights but sort of the big things that stand out in the past 12 months for you I, i'm guessing exams because you spent most of august on the telly i did but we had a long run into that exams like i think when they made the announcement that the schools were going to close to everybody but the key worker and vulnerable children and exams were closed it was more shocking uh, exams were off it was more shocking that the exams announcement came then I think everybody was expecting the school closures, but nobody was really anticipating that exams were going to be completely taken off the table at that point. And I think that was that was just as shocking as everything else that was happening at that time, even though the exams were way off in the future. And then, of course, we had these centre-assessed grades that was just all kinds of delightful chaos with the poor teachers, some of them trying to, um, like... Play it, by, play it by the rules and making sure they're not overestimating the grades and they could support the, the grades if they were ever called to by collecting evidence and then put them all forward with this crazy inflation and they said, oh no, we can't do that, but use an algorithm. Oh, actually, the algorithm doesn't work. And the, all the, the reversals and the, the calling for, for, for a little bit of common sense and then when, when we realised, when, I think when Scotland's, Scotland announced that they were going to revert to the centre-assessed grades, Amongst my friends that are teachers, everybody was very taken aback and thought, oh, this is a mistake. Oh, no, this is going to be chaotic. This isn't, this isn't a good idea. And then as the fallout came with the A-levels, it became really apparent that that was, was the right decision to make. And But, you know, more, more than just exams, thinking back to, to when the schools actually decided to close. I remember doing school run and um, one of the other parents saying to me, this is before the, the schools obviously closed, you know, I'm just, I'm just really fed up of it now. I don't want to hear about coronavirus anymore. I'm just, I'm so over it. <laughs> I'm saying, wow. we've not even started. Like this isn't, <laughs> this isn't even the beginning yet. This is How a- disappointed must she have been? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you make a good point there that, you know, I think even at that start, people were, people had a bit of news fatigue right at the beginning of this. Mm. And there was a sense that this will come and go. And I think, as you say, that's why the exams announcement was so shocking. It was that, oh, actually, the government knows something we don't. This isn't going to be over quickly. This is going to be a long term problem. And even though sort of people at the briefings like Chris Whitty were saying that, yeah, this is the long haul, you sort of like, oh, yeah, we've had this before, you know. 
yeah, because it's so it's so unprecedented. And it's the overused word of the year, but mm. I think that moment was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a long haul. But I don't think anyone would have thought we'd be sitting here a year on after a full year of disruption. Mm. Um, and we're talking about the twenty twenty two exams being changed now and altered, and that's why that's one of the reasons why in the magazine this week we've got the for and against getting rid of terminal exams at 16 because you know Nick Gibb was saying just last week that the gold standard GCSE has not had its day and the reaction online is that that sort of classic marmite isn't it there's people that think no we've got to keep the GCSE and those reasons are are varied and those that are happy to just to tear up those that exam timetable and banish formal examinations to the the bin of education history how far back do you go I mean if we if we take it as read that children have lost learning and i think that is a debatable point as is debated in the in the special edition but let's say there's lost learning so we have to amend exams next year what about your you know if if people have a sequence curriculum like they're supposed to have done you know if if we have knowledge building on knowledge and one of those bricks has gone and there's no extra time to make that up how far back do you go where this exam is 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 authentic and fair i mean that's the problem they're going to face is that well if we're going to say the year 10s have been disadvantaged what about the year nines what about the year eights what about the year sevens what about those kids who didn't do sats you know it, it's a difficult difficult one to argue i think um but we'll get into that i guess when we talk about your gcc's feature later in the podcast um dan what about you well i i remember having a conversation with gronia probably about a week before the exams announcements. And we were sort of saying, well, they won't cancel exams because you couldn't have a year as cohort who didn't have exams. And, it, and, we, and we were both saying it with such certitude because that's what it felt like even just a week before. And I totally agree. There was that moment where Gavin Williamson and Boris were kind of talking at the same time. Like Boris was talking to the nation. Gavin Williamson was in the House of Commons. And we all knew they were going to have school closures. And then Gavin Williamson said exams were cancelled and I don't think Boris mentioned it at all and there was this real I had this real memory of thinking like this is a moment where like it's so so many big things are happening at once something as massive as exams being cancelled is almost it's a bit like the day of um, Brexit it was like the third biggest story of the day was exams being cancelled you know it was like David Cameron resigning was the third biggest story after Brexit and the you know the economy crashing yeah. overnight or something and it was this real moment of like this is a moment this is that kind of weird sort of, oh my god all this stuff that we sort of like surely no they won't it will just die away again like the other outbreaks had in the past in the UK at least but it didn't and obviously we're still here and for me one of the most interesting things has been oh, obviously there's so many elements to it but I've because I've been looking at the international sector alongside what's going on in the UK for like the last 12 months it's been really really interesting and really kind of a, a sort of sobering point is just this is it sounds obvious but it is a global thing and there are teachers i'm talking to in malaysia in australia in canada you know in peru and they're all grappling with these same issues and i just think that's an amazing thing for i mean and all professions in a way are grappling with it but obviously teaching is such a sort of it relies on that human contact but all around the world pupils and adults you know, teachers are have dealt with this and will all have outcomes from it you know positive negative lost learning not lost learning whatever it is and, and you sort of remember that you know teaching is a is a very interesting subject like that, a career like that isn't it because you can pick up your tools and walk, walk into a classroom in malaysia and the fundamentals still apply and so when a pandemic occurs the same problems occur and um but but again we talk about it a lot when this issue covers it well but the, the, the way teachers have adapted the flexibility the adaptability the innovation particularly 
been so interesting to see. And again, the specialist she does such a nice job of looking at that, that, that positive side, shall we say, as much as the sort of it's been really hard, which undoubtedly it has, because again, internationally, teachers have found it very, very tough, as, as, as totally understandably. It's actually more exceptional with the places where they haven't been as affected, isn't it? Like I've got a friend who lives on a little Caribbean island and there they've not really had, I don't think they've had any cases at all. Mm. And it's, it's mad yeah. to think of the places where life has just carried on as normal. Isn't, and it, do you know what I mean? It, that, that, yeah. That, that, yeah. And when this first started, I don't think any of us thought that the normal would be this and the exception would mm. be the other. Yeah, that's no, completely. And I think as part of, you know, as you were saying, Dan, there are some positives. I think my, my, my biggest sort of shock moment, really, and after a year of shocks, it was it was tough to top it. But, you know, going back for one day in, in mm. January was just, it was just everything that was had gone wrong. It was so disorganised and it just showed just the chaos within the people who were supposed to be setting you know, the agenda for schools. The lack of listening, the lack of listening to the schools that were saying it's not safe to reopen, we need to close early and and threatening them with, with legal action if they followed with, it was with just what they knew was whole, right for their contexts. That whole Christmas period was just crazy and, and, and to culminate in that one day of school just sort of typified what had happened and to credit to the DfE, I think since that moment, things have improved hugely mm-hmm. and I think the announcement of the run up to the 8th of March was handled shockingly well. You know, it had been shockingly bad before, but suddenly the guidance followed the announcement. Everything was very sensible. I remember you doing that piece, Dan, and saying, wow, they've, they've actually highlighted the changes yeah. at, the, at the top. Yeah. And it's such a yeah. simple thing, but it was just a whole sh- culture shift in that, in it, after that first one. It's like it woke them up in a way. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think on the positive side, I, I just love seeing all these conversations that are happening because, because we sort of, you know, there has been a hard reset. There's been these, you know, what is lost learning? What is learning? How should we approach this? Should we go back to the same sort of teaching? Should schools look like this? And most of it has been pleasant, interesting, constructive debate. And I think what we've missed is an opportunity really to reflect on, hang on, what, you know, because teaching such a run of stuff, right? There's always stuff to do. And suddenly it was like, well, actually, we're not in a classroom. We've changed what we do massively. Do we want to go back? And what does that mean? And if we do want to go back, you know, what are the benefits of that? And I think we've seen some really, really interesting conversations. And I hope those conversations will lead to change of of a nature that teachers want, not what I want. Um, I'm just a humble parent um, (laughs) and an education journalist. But I hope that teachers are able to sort of define what they want to be a bit more after this and I think that would be a real positive outcome of the pandemic if we see some trust and some autonomy given not to teachers in classrooms and to and to schools individually as well because I I felt it all was all becoming a bit of homogenous before um Mm. the pandemic I thought where's those interesting people who are trying stuff and I think accountability and other measures had stopped people experimenting and we were having to look I mean most of the experimentation was coming through Dan's stuff from international schools mm-hmm. and you're thinking oh, okay this is this is a really different way of thinking about stuff whereas I think now we'll see everyone like that hopefully um, hmm. another good thing has been the laptops so although they took forever the to come out the laptops <laughs> yeah. although they took forever to come out and they only got delivered to everybody once the uh, school closures had ended a year after the pandemic had started but 
we've now got more tech for students who need it. And I think this has really shown the digital divide that we have in this country and the the issues were always there, but the pandemic just shone a light on them and people weren't possibly aware of how bad it was before. You know what, though, on that, I mean, speaking to someone with four kids, right, if my kids were all in their teenagers, there's no way I could afford four laptops. Yeah, I would, I would not sit in the FSM bracket with, with our no. family mm. income. But then how do you, you know... How do you, do you else wouldn't cope? Get those your broadband, kids? your broadband would not cope with four kids. My, my, my broadband doesn't cope with this podcast. <laughs> um, or, but um, no, I think there's, and I think that nuance is starting to come in, and I think that nuance is interesting with the catch-up premium, which has been attached to pupil premium. I get it; it makes sense, right? You know, so it's mm. a, it's the right lever to pull, but it's, it's going to be very difficult to get, you know, that blanket assumption that. Child X is in this social economic socioeconomic easy for you to say socioeconomic bracket, so therefore it needs Y is is a bit you know broad brush yes get into the nitty gritty on each school it's not going to work like that and I think flexibility for schools is going to be so key as a result. Okay, let's get back into the the edition and let's look at some specific features. Um, we've already talked a bit about exams, so let's start. There, Gronje. What what have we got in this edition in terms of the big exam debacle, 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 debacle? Yeah, you see, I need I need more oracy lessons. I need to go to school twenty one. <laughs> Elocution. Um, um, yes. Yeah, I wouldn't be the one to give it. Uh, so. Because exams have been disrupted for two years running and a likely third year in 2022, we address this in our issue to mark the year of school closures. And in this feature, we have two MAT leaders putting across their thoughts on the issue. The four exam side, putting forward the argument of social levelling and highlighting the importance of how exams can provide social mobility and the chance for all students, regardless of background, to have a platform on which they can compete fairly with their counterparts. And the argument against keeping GCSEs brings up the issue of different types of assessments. You know, there's other options there. We don't have to do these assessments as exam sat in an exam hall. And it gives the example of like university vivas and says that study shouldn't be limited to the national curriculum. And by having exams, we're we're limiting the, the study our students will do because we don't we don't have all the options open to the teachers because they know they've got to sit at an exam that's standardised at the end of it. But I thought what we need now is a, a history lesson. You know, I love a history lesson. So you know all about BTECs and GCSEs and A-levels and we kind of know about O-levels and GCEs because that's what our parents and older siblings did. But do you know what exa when exams were actually first introduced in England? Formal um, standardised exams. Formal standardised exams that everybody did. I, I'm going to guess something like the 1890s, but it'll be for a very small section of a society who actually went to school beyond the age of 14 or whatever it was. Mm, yeah, I think I remember reading something that it was a university set exams to get into university, but I don't know if that was if that counts as everybody because there's loads of kids not in school. So. Well, Dan's on the right lines about saying it wasn't for everybody because the answer changes. It's different depending on if we're talking about boys or girls. Uh, boys first sat the first public examinations, which were set by universities, John, like Oxford and Cambridge, in see. 1858. And then their female counterparts were allowed to sit them in 1867. But were they that similar to what we did today? They're, they're sort of similar. So they were, they, were sort of, they were sat at Christmas time rather than the summer. 
But they had exams for 16-year-olds and they had exams for 18-year-olds and they sat them in centres like schools or village halls. And subject-wise, they're pretty similar. So they, they, But they called it like drawing instead of art and religious knowledge instead of RE. And the way they examined the students was was quite different. So the examiners would come down from the universities on the train in full academic dress, like wearing their gowns, and they'd have a locked box of exam papers with them that they'd take to the centre. And then the exams weren't sat, you know, like how we have the exam examination period now spreading out weeks and weeks and weeks. They did it all in about seven days and they would do the morning, afternoon and evening, like all crammed together into the same week. And um, do you want to have some... some... Well, can I just ask a question though? Do, are exams not delivered similarly sort of lock and key now? Yeah, but do you, you don't get I mean? to wear a fancy dress and take them down well, yourself. No, but, yes, but don't you're right. They, to... they, they, sent, they get sent in locked fans. Yeah, because I was going to say, aren't the Securicore guys or mm. other, I'm sure other yeah. secure management companies are available, but don't they sort of start with a big visor and that's like the modern day equivalent? That's a heist movie waiting to be made. Yes. Kid, oh, that would be brilliant because you'd have the children could be the ones doing the heist and that would be quite fun, wouldn't it? And then they like a modern day, the modern, um, Bugsy Malone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've okay. never seen Bugsy Malone. Me neither. <laughs> I love Bugsy Malone. My primary school did a production of Bugsy Malone, so I know all the songs from it. It's a good oh, pie fight, I know My that. kids love Bugsy Malone. You should show it. It's a good one. Okay, questions. You ready for your 1800 style questions? Yes. Okay, number one. Obtain the sum of 46 times 7,020. In my head? In no, sure we can write it down, right? Yeah, you can write it down. 46, 46 times, times what? what? 7,020. Oh my god. Obtain the sum. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. 46 times 7,020. Oh There's still got many yeah. ways to do this. I've forgotten how to do long multiplication. <laughs> I don't uh, think I ever knew. Me No. I got a B in maths. No. I don't know how. 120. Hang I haven't worked different. any of these out, by the way. I'm going to use my calculator. It's going to be about... Uh, Oh, it's too difficult. It's not. There is it's, th- it's something like it's something like twenty nine thousand or something. You're Hang way on. off. Hang Could on. Not be You're way oh, way t- off. Sorry, you know, I mean, like, uh, two two hundred ninety thousand. You're warmer, but you're not right. It is. Oh, hang on, hang on. Long multiplication to nine. Oh, I, mean, I, know, right. I know what to do. Okay. I don't know why I'm sat here so smugly. I just had to do it on a calculator. 392,920. No. Oh, I failed. But you were close. You've just got your, like, one digit out. But, like, hundreds out. A lot out. Tens of thousands out? I'm really sorry to all the people that taught me maths. Sorry, I, I appreciate that me and Dan scribbling. Um, yeah, I'm just commentating. Sums. So, so John's finished now. So thirty. I'm never going to get near it, but it's something. Is it something like thirty three hundred twenty thousand and something? Are you doing a pretty Patel there with your your number? Read it again, Dan. Three hundred twenty thousand, something like that. Yeah. yeah Dan's right. First... Something like that. <laughs> it's three hundred twenty two thousand nine hundred twenty. No. Oh, so close. I know, yeah, you were so close. You were just a digit out, weren't you? Yeah, I've done my carry okay. wrong. Done oh, carry um, wrong. I won't make you work, work these ones out, but other ones. 17 times 1 million and 1. And 33 times 33. 
999. 999, yeah. Today. Um, okay, name the queens and the children of Henry VIII. Oh, God. Oh, no. Well, Catherine of Aragon, Jane Boleyn. What? Jane uh, Boleyn? No, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour. <laughs> yep. Catherine Howard, uh, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Parr. I think Catherine Parr and Catherine Howard are the way around, actually. And then children. Um, well, children. Edward the Sixth. Mm-hmm. the First. Good one. Uh, is that it? And is, no, it wasn't Mary. Mary, Mary yeah. yeah. Mary was she Spots, bloody Mary? No. Oh, don't think. I think that's Mary the first. I, I used to be. Good, I used to be very good at all that, and I've none like, of us are getting to Oxbridge, guys. Nice. The um, Oxbridge tutors aren't going to bother with us. This one, John should get. What three Indeed. ways was Jesus tempted in the wilderness? Very apt this time of year as well. Jesus. Um, yeah, Jesus. Because that's now, isn't it? John, my girls still have not had um, some my. Three children have all given up sauce for Lent, like dipping sauce, and they've managed it. It's a miracle. It's a little. I I I've, I can't remember any of my Catholic education. I have Eastern. no idea what tempted Jesus Eastern. in the in the desert. Water. Yeah, probably food. Food and shelter. There you go. Probably. We are Sounds completely. Let, there's people screaming at there and. Uh, another this... mention from my friend Pete, who's both religious and a maths teacher. I've got the maths <laughs> question wrong and I've got the RE question wrong. And I'm sorry. But this is what the tests apparently were like. They were just like long lists of regurgitating facts. And that's what... That's Are what we like. at a point where that's much different now? Oh, it's completely different now. Behave, John. In RE, you do loads of um, essay questions. You don't just... <sighs> you do. You know, I've been in... Okay. But don't, how Mark, many... Mark Enser will get very cross with you. Yeah, because you don't, like history, and, and she, it was Bloody Mary, you were right, I looked it up, but um, in history, yeah, you don't just learn the facts, do you? But you do need to know the facts to then tell the story of, like the Russian Revolution, like what did that, you need to And like the, the Bloody Mary story. thing, you know, it, it helps when I watch The Crown. This, yeah, exactly, and is this useful, like is it useful to know the three children of Henry VIII? Yes. Well, yes. But if you want to understand, and when you're, when you're like, teaching Macbeth, I always have to go back and reteach. Like, but that's what I'm saying. But, but does it? It's useful to know it. But does it help you learn? No. But so you need to. You need both, don't you? Yeah. Like, it's no use because we have to say, like, "Oh, I know everything exactly. about what happened in, in the Henry VIII context," but I don't know the who who mm. the people were because mm. it's like, well, that's what I need to know that as well. I need to know. That's so right, Dan. It's a tricky one. Isn't Playing it? devil's advocate here, though, there are instances where children. You know, I've talked to exam markers where they say they've got pieces of essay writing that are startlingly similar because stock phrases and sentences have been learnt. And isn't that good if they've learnt good ways to express their thoughts? The trouble is they get to university and and there's not that... And then they'll be able to extend that into academic work. If you could prove that when children who've got good essay writing skills at GCSE go on to do badly, poorly at university because they've learned no, good sentence you've phrase... you twisted my words then I like, would re- a, like I'd, Jeremy I'd love, to, I'd love to see that evidence. I meant verbatim opinion sentences, i.e. Shylock in The Merchant of Venice does X, Y or Z, and it's the same... But whose whose fault is that? Is that the child's fault, or is it the teacher's fault, or is it the exam board's fault for knowing that that's how you get a good mark? I'm not saying anyone is at fault. I'm just saying you could take it. You could spin that to anyone's fault, couldn't you? It may be those online revision guides. Maybe we should blame them. No, no, I don't think that's very fair, is it? (laughs) Who's who? Do you advocate the stock learning of 
phrases that are then put into into exams. I've forgotten who was telling me about this. It's one of the um, English examiners who was saying that, she, you know, you can see scripts that have got exactly the same Yeah, phrasing. I'm not literature. I know what she's talking about. Sounds, I think that's... It, if they've applied it correctly, brilliant. You've got to think, what would that child do otherwise? Because you get plenty of scripts where the kid doesn't write anything down at all. That's an interesting debate so, for us to have off, off, off the airways with our teachers because none of us are teachers so I'd like to know more about it and I'd like to know more opinion on where the line sits between a rote learned essay and a, and a good use of structured scaffolded sentences and I think that line may be blurrier than Gronje would like to admit. <laughs> um, let's go to feature three and uh, two, two I'm ahead of myself sorry everyone, um, feature two Dan. Yeah, so the piece I've chosen is from two researchers called Catherine Asbury and Lisa Kim, who at the University of York. And I actually spoke to them back in May, I think it was what, April last year, about this, this work that they'd done, which was to sort of accurately record the, I guess you might say, the sort of the state of affairs, the state of the nation among teachers um, by talking to them at you know specific points through the pandemic to hear how they were finding it. And I think that's important because I think if you just live off the kind of anecdote, which obviously is true, but sort of un sort of you know documented in a sort of academic sense of, of what was it like to go through the pandemic, what happened to teachers, what were the sort of ups and downs, then you never you never really have it. You never have a true sort of a document you can sort of point to say that these are, you know, all, all carried out at the same sort of time on, you know, spaced apart interviews. And uh, there's some really interesting insights. And we talked about analogies the other way. There's some great analogies in here. One particularly, there was during the sort of November time, apparently one teacher said, my brain feels like a browser with 100 tabs open. I love that. Which I thought was spot on because that's probably how I think a lot of people felt really. It's like, and you never got to close any of them because you couldn't, Mm. you had to keep them open just in case you needed to think about that thing again, you know, like going back to remote learning, which then did happen. Um, And yeah, I think as well, you know, there'll probably be much more work for them to do to sort of really document this all together. And when you say, right, the pandemic's over, we can now fully collate all our results. But I think it shows that the moment the pandemic started, there was this push straight away to recognise that education obviously is going to go through some big changes here and teachers are going to bear the brunt of that, just like and, and pupils in different ways. And we need to track that and understand what happens and know like what happens when you put hundreds of people, thousands of people through a really sort of stressful instant change in their working lives you know what's the outcome what went well what when were the peak when were the stress points do they mm. correlate with poor government decisions and so it's 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 a it's a slightly different piece within the magazine in the way that it's sort of taking a long view on something we don't directly know yet what their outcomes will be in the way that research mm. always has that long tail but you can see quite clearly from what they've done so far that they've really gathered some interesting and very useful insights to show if nothing else just to document this time in a very sort of rational clear-headed way that's going to be in a GCC textbook in uh, in thirty years' time, isn't it? Mm. What well, with rote learned sentences, <laughs> answers. <laughs> no, let's start that again. Let it go, John. Um, I think, um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting to hear the stories, isn't it? And I think it's a good boost for qualitative research. Mm. You know, they could have done a survey and you could have got some stock answers, but the trouble with surveys is that you're sort of you're determining the parameters of your mm. of your discussion and what what. Uh, Catherine and Lisa have done is is been very open with you know let's let's have a discussion with these teachers at set periods and they you know they're weighted you know you've got the right sample and and you get insights you wouldn't like that tabs you know can't comment mm. it's it and you build a relationship with 
the interviewer over that period. So you can be honest and like you see some of that in the more positive stuff that they've experienced this year, which I don't think you'd have got over a survey because you're going to get an emotional reaction rather than a like an in-depth analysis of, of how they're actually feeling. And I think it's absolutely right in the introduction to that piece that so much of the focus this year has been on people well-being and, and rightly, you know, pupils are at, at risk of, of all sorts of stuff over the past 12 months, but teachers are too. And, you know, the sense we get are that they're knackered, you know, this is a demanding job and they've been doing it for 12 months and, you know, they've just got back and it's like for the rest of us, it's like, oh, we're heading towards normality and teachers aren't because that disruption was going to be there for the next year, two years. There's going to be this catch up pressure. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's relentless. And I think, it's easy to overlook that. Mm. Well, the piece, the other piece we're going to talk about, I think makes that point, doesn't it, as well, that I, I do worry that I think a lot of people have got through this on and come to the end on fumes. And then mm. the moment they sort of feel they morally can step away, they might, and you might see a real exodus. Um, I know I'm not saying that you want that to happen, but I, it's very, very easy to imagine there'll be a lot of teachers, particularly at the, at the top end, who've done enough and sort of feel like I've done, I've been a teacher, I've done it. I can look in the mirror and say, I, I, I did what I wanted to do as a teacher. I got through the pandemic as well. And it was the hardest thing I ever did. I can go do something else now. I can go and work in a bookshop. I can set up my own mm -hmm. business. I can retire, whatever it is, because it's just like this year, it would have been too hard to do that. Who the hell, who could walk away from this and say, you know what, I'm, I'm ducking out of all this, you know, see you later guys. I don't think many, any real, you know, teacher, leader, whatever would do that. But I worry that in 18 months time, you'll see this, clear statistical drop-off of numbers of teachers which may be fulfilled at the bottom end i was going to say teachers, so that's, you're losing the, yeah. the the knowledge base at the top aren't you and that's that's that takes years literally years to replace because you can't just have that overnight yes because the other piece in another piece in the magazine this week is about um the experience of trainee teachers mm. and um when i was interviewing the, the different people involved in ite for the piece we were saying i Bets. I've got some long-term bets now put on with um, Sam Tristan and uh, and Jan over at Liverpool, and saying that um, these this crop will have the best retention after five years because if they've taught through this, mm. they'll be fine. If you can winter, if you can winter this, you can summer anywhere. It'll be fine. I think it's always got to be careful about blanket statements I think you can see in terms of you know as as well as like every child suffered trauma through lockdown is not right every teacher won't have had a horrible experience of lockdown. Mm. And mm. I think that piece brings it out as well, that the Catherine Asprey research brings this out. And also, you know, you can see it in the comments and the, the pieces that we've had in TES over the year. Some people have just thrived in this environment and, and this has been their their um, sort of their moment. And other people have just hated every second of it. Mm. And it's important for leaders to get to know their staff and get to know how they found the last 12 months. I remember one of... At my school, which was sort of a middle of the road school in, in terms of, you know, in terms of sort of, it wasn't elite and it wasn't, you know, really rough. Um, one of our music teachers was leaving. I said, oh, why are you leaving? He said, because I'm bored. He said, I want to go to a, a really challenging school and I want to be in the thrust of it. And I want to, you know, have kids just shouting at me. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I was like, wow, why would you want to do that? And actually some, some teachers do thrive in that, in that environment, I think. Mm. it's similar with the pandemic some would have just found this just exciting not exciting is probably the wrong word but embrace the challenge if you like and some mm. would have just thought god i'm bored 
<laughs> and felt valued and felt like education has been so important this year. And look, look at what happened when they did close the schools partially. Like it's been absolute uproar about it. And it makes you feel like the job you do is really, really important. Here's a question I was thinking about for my leader and I didn't put it in, but I'm interested in your view of it. I was thinking about this notion that parents have an, an appreciation for the role of teachers more than they've ever had done. And we've heard a lot about that over the past 12 months. You know, God, parents are really going to understand teachers. They're going to like be really sympathetic to teachers. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think, I think the, the eagerness and the understanding is that I like my child in a building for eight hours away from me so I can do my job. I'm not certain. I think... I think people, maybe it's the press around it or, or whatever. I haven't seen a huge shift of parents being more understanding. Of well, I think role. I think it was the start of the pandemic it was. And I think over the subsequent way it's played out, yeah, it's moved to what you just described. I think at the start there was an appreciation of, wow, you know, teaching is really hard. And, and you know, I realise now what they were doing for my, my, my child. But I think that's what indicative of the wider pandemic. Because you remember at the start, there was a big thing around about, oh, it'll make, this will make everyone kinder. And yeah. there was a big about that. And it seems like I always sort of say that to my wife and it was a joke. I was like when you're watching someone on the news and the sort of vitriol that's being like, well, everyone's kinder now, thanks to the pandemic. <laughs> and it was just like, it was like everyone's in this together. And then, as you said earlier, John, or I think it was, it very quick, quickly became apparent, actually, we weren't all listening together and the socioeconomic impact was much harder on those in tower block flats with you know, like no access yeah. to the internet and all that. If you lived in a nice big house with a big garden, all life was quite quite nice wasn't it you know mm. and the idea that we're all in this together it's like no we're not we're all going through the same thing literally but the experience is very different and i do think that now yeah you're right that kind of early optimism about wow the we see now really what teachers do has been replaced by oh god get my kids back to school mm. and then school becomes back to this just like holding pen rather than this kind of place of growth and learning You've also got green-eyed monster jealousy style of hearing that your friend's kids got this provided by their teachers and they got these amazing lessons and their yeah. teachers do all this wonderful stuff and you feel aggrieved that your child didn't get the same experience. I mean, I've read some dreadful conversations between people complaining about some kids that get to go into school and what can I do to get a key worker job so I can get my child into school? And you just think, oh, I mean, really? But, you know... That's inevitable. It's completely it? true. I think, again, it's that individual experience, isn't it? And I'll give a quick plug to another podcast here because I've been listening to the Matthew Side podcast on um, BBC Sounds Sideways and there's an, a fascinating latest episode which is a, a um, social anthropologist who went into a tribe in Africa at a time <laughs> of famine and he judged them to be the most unkind people ever in history in the world and said, you know, these people, there's not a kindness bone in them and since then, people have gone back. And actually, in terms of how people act within periods of famine, they were quite mild in their actions. But because he had no comparison and because he, yeah. he judged them on that one snippet of time and didn't see them over a course of time, it completely skewed the world's ver uh, opinion of this tribe in Africa. And I think we do need to appreciate the past 12 months have been a unique circumstance and people have behaved in different yeah. ways and different reactions that hopefully aren't normal hopefully the unkindness we've seen hasn't been a revert to our natural state um so yeah it's an interesting podcast that one so to, to have a listen after you've listened to this one okay to finish off i think we need to give a shout out to the heads because the past 12 months have been tough for everyone but 
I think if you read Vic Goddard's piece, uh, who's who's co-head teacher of Passmore's Academy in, in Essex, if you read his piece in the magazine, you just see how horrific it's been for a school leader in the past 12 months. And Vic's piece is, as always, searingly honest. And it's one of those that just stopped me in my tracks. And I went, wow, I mean, this is someone's heart, you know, on full display. And he talks about not having an off switch this year, about having not just the well-being of his pupils, but the well-being of his staff and his school community on his head and how that means you can never relax. And so for the past 12 months, he's he's been sort of scientist, public health official, mm-hmm. doctor, head teacher, shoulder to cry on, grief counsellor. He's been everything. And, and as he said, it's the first time he's ever considered his position. You know, can I do this anymore? And he looks at the situation they've come back to and the increased pressure on catch-up. And he said, this isn't going away. And I'm I'm done. You know, I'm I'm at my limit of what I can do. And there's a great sentence where he says, you know, I'm a PE teacher. I'm not a scientist. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm making public health decisions. And I think it's easy to underestimate how, how much pressure was on a school leader. And, you know, I've spoken to heads and, you know, parents emailing at midnight saying, you've let the morals of this school down because you're not taking my child as a key worker and all the complaints. And, you know, we we really underestimated the, the huge change that head teachers have had to lead in the past 12 months. And we have to recognise that schools don't like change. You know, schools are, are pretty change-averse environments because every little tweak will impact somebody. And yet the wholesale change of the past 12 months. So I think... When you read Vic's piece, you just that is all laid out in six hundred words of just mm. pure emotion. I would say. Well, you've done a, a bang on job describing it, and I think to sort of try and speak too much more on it would almost like be futile because, like I say, Vic's piece does that job, and, and we mm. sort of touched on it. Like that was the piece I was referring to earlier. And you're right; it's quite stark. We're very stark and, and honest. And as you said, I did. I did feel like I can imagine that lack of off switch entirely you know i can really really understand that because i mean i think we all struggle to switch off at weekends but we don't have you know 30 300 you know 800 children under our duty of care and their parents and and teachers who are at risk and all those things and not knowing what's come down on friday night from the dfe and all that i mean to, to carry that load i mean that that is seriously intense and i think like i say people will process that at, in the moment and then they'll process it again 12 months down and that might be when there's sort of the reality of I can't get out of bed anymore because I've done it I've done enough now and I'm, I'm knackered and I, it just wore me out and I, I got through it at the time because I had to but now I don't have to so I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna step away and I hope that's not the case I hope maybe a, a break people come back actually thinking wow I did something amazing and I've got another 10 years in me but like you can see why some teachers might go I did my bit I'm, I'm gonna move on and you know Vic's an excellent leader he's mm. Passmore's is a brilliant school. It's got a fantastic reputation. Parents are very supportive of, of Vic. You know, he's got a good relationship with his his community. Those head teachers who are new to post or who have taken over difficult schools or are going through who are already going through stages of transition and change in their schools, and this happened as well. If Vic is finding it that difficult, think about those other leaders who are already in really challenging circumstances and trying to make things work. Those those heads need the most support we could possibly give them otherwise we can't we can't do this without head teachers mm. it you know we need we need good leadership and i think the trouble with this this churn at the leadership level is that mm. people enter leadership at points where they're not ready because they're mm. forced to 
So not only do you have a problem that we've got this high stakes headship anyway, you then put them those teachers through a, those head teachers through a pandemic. You're going to get a loss of those leadership positions at an earlier stage than other people are ready. You know, in an ideal world, you'll have this gradual shift through a school of people coming in or people being promoted where people are being prepared for that role. Yeah. And leadership training is notoriously... Uh, um, <laughs> patchy? Patchy. Thank you, Gronya. Patchy. Anyway, so there's, there's even really experienced people who are ready to step into the headship role are, are have a big deficit to, to make up in terms of their knowledge. Um, All of those things that would have been put in place, like job shadowing and... Um, mm-hmm. There's like sabbatical changes where you you go to a different school and you try a different school. Secondment, that's the word I want. All of those things that would have been in place Mm. haven't happened. And consequently, people don't feel prepared to step up or they see that the the pressures that their their, um, predecessors have on them don't want to do it themselves. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think there's been a recalibration, isn't there, as well, where you think, okay, what do I value Mm. as a person? and People have had more time with their family than they ever would have done normally. Yeah. They've had more time to themselves, really. You know, even in the most stressful of jobs, there's just so little to do outside of your own house that, you know, you, you value that like, you miss those social interactions and stuff. And like you think, well, OK, if I step up in teaching mm-hmm. to a head teacher role, I'm still I'm going to give up all that stuff that I've really missed for like five, ten years. Do I really want to be doing that? And do I really not want to see my family after I've got used to seeing them so much? And I think there's a real culture shift that needs to happen in schools to make headship more appealing. And if you if you talk to some of these some of the people who are heads, and if you talk to Megan Dixon, for example, one of our writers about headship, you get a real sense that there's a lot of sacrifices you have to make for that. And you know, how willing are people going to be able to do that? So I think, you know, not to be too bleak about it, we are heading to a bit of a leadership crisis if we weren't in one already. And mm. I think government needs to make some changes there. Yeah, I think I think maybe. I think, like you said, let's try and find a, your, to your positive earlier, though, John, like maybe some teachers will have thrived in this and they see leadership as a chance to then take what they've learned and put it in place in a school-wide level and say, oh, we, no, I know new ways of working and teaching are possible and I'm going to put them in when I get to that headship role and I want to enact that change and I think there will be some who feel excited by the challenge and I think we should try and at least sort of yeah let's not be because you said it earlier I think you were right it's like let's not be too one brush because we know people will have had it fine enough but some maybe there'll be a new generation of leaders who bring new ideas to the fore in the way that the current generation have as well and that's that's the evolution of every profession isn't it in a way that's and a very good point because it's exciting, isn't it? Because if we are going to reset and mm. you have these ideas, what better time than next September to take control of a school mm. and have a clean slate? Mm. I mean, it's not a complete clean slate, but you've never been able to justify those changes more than you would in September. And yes. I think maybe let's end on a positive, actually. Yes, Dan, because I was being a bit miserable then and and it was partly justified, but partly not. And I think we should say, actually, teachers have done amazing for the last 12 months. This edition, special edition, does prove that teachers have been amazing for the last 12 months. And we can look ahead with some excitement, actually, that going back to the earlier point, that hopefully they'll have the autonomy and, and the freedom to to innovate and to follow their gut a bit and take some risks, because I think that's the only way we're going to really see the change that probably the system needs. Um, so, yes, read the issue. A huge, huge, huge congratulations to Helen Amas for putting this together because it is, you know, 
talking about working from home and the logistics of, of changing. I mean, putting a magazine together remotely is tough. Putting a special issue together remotely is almost impossible. So she's done a fantastic job. And thank you to all the contributors who, who, who wrote for the issue. And um, please read, please reflect, and please, please tell us what you think. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.